I say to people that what will help you be more uh, disciplined in what you're thinking about and, and why you're thinking about it is being a steward of what moves you, what inspires you, what biblical text, what biblical verse, what conversation in a film, what line in a book, what inspired me today. Welcome to the Renovare Podcast, a place for honest conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and my guest today is Professor Emeritus of Communication and Media at Spring Arbor University, author, actor, and playwright, Paul Patton. The rapid restructuring of society based on technological advancements, advancements that have had a dramatic impact on our lives, at least in recorded history, is completely unparalleled to anything humans have ever faced. Of course, our collective society is ever-changing. It's always been this way, as has the very real human challenges to adjust and adapt. So much of our daily existence is dominated by new means for communication, information, and entertainment. I think it's worth pausing and asking if we really have the tools, insights, and ultimately character to interact in our world with some level of health and wisdom. For how we navigate our changing world has profound spiritual implications. And in part, this is why I wanted to interview Paul Patton, co-author of a new book titled Everyday Sabbath, How to Lead Your Dance with Media and Technology in Mindful and Sacred Ways. And then this book, the authors thoughtfully offer formidable and practical ways to live well in this particular time in human history. I've known Paul for years, even interviewed him a couple of times, and each time I'm struck by his wisdom and cultural astuteness, and in his trademark firehose style, this little interview is packed full of information and insights. So buckle up and enjoy. Paul, I really like the subtitle you guys came up with for the book. Uh, I'll read it to people here. The book is Everyday Sabbath, How to Lead Your Dance with Media and Technology in a Mindful and Sacred Way. That is just well done. I love it. Okay, good. I love it. I'll have to congratulate my co-author, Robert Woods, on that. I think that was his uh, his his doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. it, it, It was just a wonderful way to say everything that's in the book. Good, good, good. I know that that will encourage him, you know. Yes, yes. Well, tell us a little about the book. Well, uh, it it started, I must say, probably when I was a young pastor decades ago. And I'm thinking, okay, it's Saturday. I got a sermon to finish or I could watch the football game. Not just one football game, but uh, maybe two football, maybe three (laughs) football games. And I got a juxtaposition in front of me. Finish the sermon or the football game. And I would pick the latter. I mean, because it was right there. Um, the major dramatic questions were overwhelming and you'd have to you know, respond to the commercial breaks, but they were even more entertaining than having to finish my sermon. And I'm thinking, what 
is going on internally. How is it that my constant exposure through media uh, to entertainment options were always the ones that won, even if I had responsibilities pastorally? And I wrote about this in my journal. I can follow my journal entries over uh, the last uh, 30 years. Uh, since 1989, I started... <laughs> What is what is this? Uh, certainly, I understand that uh, previous centuries, um, and Augustine talks about this a little bit about his engagement with the theater and and why it was so compelling when he had other things to do as a rhetorician. But I had other responsibilities. I couldn't monitor and moderate my engagement with pop culture and twenty four seven entertainment, and so I I've, uh, I wrote about that and. Uh, so that's that's where it started, uh, shall we say, autobiographically with me. And then I started working with congregants, and I started working with students having taught uh, uh, Intro to Pop Culture class, which I love. And I love, by the way, pop culture. I love film. I love uh, television. I love every, every form, right? I was asking... Uh, my students uh, to start monitoring and moderating their what I call dance with pop culture. Um, even if you are uh, uh, wanting to completely obliterate pop culture, uh, uh, social media from your life, you're still going to have some exposures. And so in the series of self-examinations that are in the book uh, that help us understand where we're at in our dance with pop culture, the students would come out of those series of, of questions, series of exercises saying, look, it, I don't know how to say no to uh, uh, the entertainment screens in front of me. So uh, that's, that's where it came from. And I knew uh, a lot of it was my own experience, my own disability at thinking through what it meant to call Jesus Lord of my entertainment passions, what it meant to call Jesus Lord of my Sabbath opportunities, what it meant to dance with pop culture in ways that were wise. What I found uh, as I started writing years ago in teaching, again, the pop culture class is this is a difficulty with a great percentage of people in the culture. How do you call Jesus Lord of your moment to moment and yet he's not uh, the, the Lordship of Christ. Your presuppositions, your, your, your Shema, if you will, uh, is not considered when there's something great on television. Uh, it's my sermon or the football game. Could you unpack a little what you mean when you say dance with, uh, with pop culture? Pop culture, social media is with us. We can either allow it to be taking the lead or we can take the lead with it. Being able to know when that dance partner is stepping on our feet, kicking us in the shin, we can get so uh, lulled into a marathon dance session that we don't even know uh, what room we're in. And uh, with the dance metaphor, I'm saying to the readers and to audiences I speak to about this topic, how is it that you make sure that you're the one leading the dance and make sure that you're the one bringing uh, the dance partner into your space? And to that dance partner isn't obliterating the possibility of you telling your stories and being sensitive to those about you. G give an example. You go to a restaurant and you might be talking to Nathan Foster himself and you look over the shoulder because, you know, it's one of those silent screens in the restaurant bar and they're showing the home run that you've already seen six times. But you leave the eye contact with the person across from you in the booth and you're going to follow that screen, uh, you know, the, the technical 
technical changes just glue you to itself. And by the way, I'm trying to figure out what restaurant guru decided that what we wanted is not photos, not pictures, not paintings, but giant screens uh, with technical changes, you know, 64 a minute, uh, uh, you know, how that helps with the restaurant atmospheres and conversations. But that's part of our dance with pop culture, the, the capacity that we have that's infinite, it seems, to be distracted. Yeah, well, well, it, it helps us from having to engage with each other when there's Absol- 50, what a 50 screens right yeah, exactly. there. Exactly, me converse. <laughs> Part of what I'm hearing in the dance is learning to be intentional, to not be a, a victim. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, because thir- the first third of the book is how to cultivate sacred intentionality as it relates to one's dance, one's engagement with pop culture. As I got older... I'd realized uh, in in working through some of the things I'm talking about, Robert and I are talking about in the book, the monitoring and moderating my dance with pop culture became a series of incremental victories, two steps forward, one step back. But I monitored in a journal uh, basically everything. I wanted to know, uh, you know, why, why did I need to watch right now? Was it resignation viewing because there was nothing else to do, nothing better to do? Was it reward viewing? Uh, in other words, I've worked hard. I, you know, I've done pastoral responsibilities. I've prepared my sermon. It's almost done. So I can reward myself with this, you know, uh, the screen time. Or was it relief? I, I need relief that the screen provides. You know, a lot of it is just spending more time, Nathan, uh, trying to, to do the work of self-discovery of prompting why why do I need to be entertained now? What do you do with that? So if I if I conclude, all right, I'm scrolling through stuff for reward, for relief, wh- does that mean I stop? Does that mean I no 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 I, I do think and we, we talk about this in the book. Uh, you start what we encouraged our students to do and we've we've worked on this for you know again 15 years they would have a pop culture journal where they would uh first off be aware of how much time they were spending on the journal this was before some of the apps that we have now that will tell you you know uh and and those are those are good things it's good to know how much time and just like any other potential addiction uh, my students, when they started guessing before specifically monitoring, they always guessed less than actually what was the reality. And so that was the first step. And that was the first step with me is started monitoring uh, precisely how much time am I spending on this? But that's what I'm recommending a lot is the first step is for people to get a journal. If they can do it on their on their laptop but monitor how much time they're spending on social media, how much time they're spending on their phone. Being more aware of that is the first step. One of the things I very much appreciate about the book is that, and this is road tested, like, I mean, you guys lived this in the classroom and revised and learned. Yeah, yeah. And I lived it pastorally since 1989 because I knew that, okay, my congregation put up with that, you know, you know, slightly underbaked sermon because I couldn't <laughs> stop watching the, the third football game. Oh, please. Yeah, right, you know, right. okay. <laughs> the, the other piece that I found really helpful is practices. And could you talk a little bit about how um, spiritual practices tie into our, our dance with pop culture? We talk about sacred intentionality. And then the second one we talk about is sacred interiority. 
And the third one we talk about is sacred identity in light of the cult of celebrity. The, the first place I would go in response to your question is encouraging people as it relates to spiritual disciplines, cultivating your sacred interiority. A lot of times I find that what happens is when people have nothing to think about, that's when they're most vulnerable to, okay, I wonder what else is on. You know, I wonder what's going to entertain me next. I wonder what I can binge on, right? As though, uh, as though they're, they're, they're use Jesus's uh, metaphor uh, uh, story in, in Matthew 20, people standing around, standing around all day because no one has hired them, the, the workers in the field. And the book talks about, and I, I've, I'm an acting teacher and I'm an actor, I contend that one of the arrogant portions of literacy is that we don't have to memorize anything. I say to people that what will help you be more uh, disciplined in what you're thinking about and, and why you're thinking about it is being a steward of what moves you, what inspires you, what biblical text, what biblical verse, what conversation in a film, uh, what line in a book, what inspired me today. In fact, I, I would say that one of the best ways to existentially stay alert and alive and appreciative is to ask yourself, what moved me today? What inspired me today? Was it a quote? Was it a statistic? Was it a story? You put it in that same journal, list it. This quote, this scripture, this statistic. Let me give you an example of a statistic that moved me years ago. When I heard that the United States had 7% of the world's population, 42% of the world's wealth. This was That's an old figure, but I remember going, whoa, statistics can do that, uh, can startle you. How do you steward a scripture verse, a confrontation of a prophet, a comfort of, of Christ? How do you steward it in such a way that you can retrieve it as circumstances invite you to redeem it? And as, as one of my heroes, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel said, inspiration passes, but having been inspired never passes. In other words, if you can retrieve what that inspirational encounter was, in, when you need it, it becomes an oasis of the mind whenever you need it. When you can retrieve it to redeem the moment that you're in. And we see all kinds of examples of that in, in the scriptures, uh, clearly. Uh, that is a, a very important uh, portion of what I think is, shall we say, redeeming the time, redeeming the mind, being less vulnerable to the barrage, to the tsunami of invitations from pop culture. So what if, um, what if I say, okay, I've, I, I know I've got a problem with social media or Facebook. I can't put it away. Uh, and, and so what I'm hearing from you is, one, keeping a journal, being aware of how much Just time. Just so that you're aware of how much time you're spending so that you can't, because our propensity is to minimize that so we can coexist and self-justify. That's you know, part of what it means to be human. I mean, <laughs> right. this is part of the reason why all the prophets got killed, is they confronted self-justification systems of kingdoms, of emperors, of empires, uh, and of people of various socioeconomic classes. It's the same way in our dance. Um, we don't want to call it addiction, but so many of my students uh, would come out of the end of the process of all of these uh, self-examinations and exercises saying, okay, what do I do? because I am, I am um, powerless. I am, it seems that I am powerless. And I, this is where we start them. Okay, start doing the monitoring and moderating. Mm -hmm. and uh, memorization, super yeah, helpful. Memorization. I, the other exercise that I would have them do is, okay, um, uh, uh, your life, you really the people that you have to trust, you know, and I think that this is not just true of 
college student life and high school student life, but adult life, people generally have to trust eight to 20, 25 people. In other words, if one of those eight to 20, 25 people said something that hurt them, said something that, 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 that hindered uh, one's ability to trust them, if you wanted to maintain that level of trust, you had to tell them, look at that, what you said hurt me. Okay. Mm -hmm. Those eight to 25 people, I always have students write out who those people are, family members, people that you are ministerial uh, compatriots, um, athletic compatriots, whatever, whatever. These are the people that are your, are your eight to 20 people that you have to trust. What I like to try to revive in people who are trying to make sense of their dance with pop culture and monitor and moderate is try to stimulate in them what I call their pastoral sensibility. Okay, their pastoral care sensibility. It's not a congregation of 500. It's eight to 25 people are in your life that you have to trust. You trust them, they trust you. Okay, you're monitoring and moderating and cultivating those relationships. So what can you do to help strengthen them? I say to students, I say to people I talk with who ask me these kinds of questions, okay, every day you're sending at least one email of encouragement to one of those 25 people. Every day you're praying for, you know, a third of those people so that everyone is prayed for every third day. This is your shepherding responsibility. Even if you don't feel like you have the pastoral gift, these are the eight to 25 people that, that the creator has given you to cultivate. Uh, are you sending them encouraging notes? Are you looking for ways to build them up and to strengthen your relationship? Are you, are you sensitive to the point where if they say something or do something that hurts your ability to, to trust them, maybe you, you need to, to engage them. But when you give people a renewed vision of their pastoral responsibilities, because simply they're made in the image of God, then that opens up a new vista of meaningful work and effort. It doesn't mean my, my pop culture engagement is obliterated, but I have more arenas what, that I can cultivate. And I, I, I can be involved in stories that I have an effect on the outcome, right? The people that I visit, the people that I pray for, I have an, an effect on the outcome of this story. So uh, fun, fun, fun. And this pulls me out of mindless scrolling? Yeah. I, I, well, yeah, yeah. I'll know it when I see it. Mindless scrolling. Uh, in fact, we talk about in the book uh, the importance of periodically, at least once a week, have a predetermined, uh, shall we say, appointment with pop culture and maybe gather some friends. We're going to watch this show, this movie at this time. So it's not just an extemporaneous moment that, I, 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 it, that I, I've cultivated or I've triggered out of boredom or any other emotional agitation. Uh, um, by the way, uh, another thing I would say is that a lot of times because our emotional agitation, including boredom, is under-investigated. Boredom's helpful. A lot of good things are birthed out of boredom. Uh, if, if oh, we're no, no question. No question. <laughs> Do we know how to steward our boredom? In fact, that we cover that in the book. And Kierkegaard, of course, as you know, talked a lot about stewarding what can be the potential inherent in boredom. What are the arenas that you want to cultivate? You know, part of it is that we're just so used to, okay, I'm bored. There's nothing else to do. I know that, you know, I can just go to the tsunami of entertainment options. And, and some of those entertainment options are brilliant. Some of them are artistic masterpieces. Some of them help us uh, think through what it means to be human, what it means to be in the world, what it means to have a relationship, what it means to repent. No question. No question. 
But too often, it's the default mode when we've run out of active things to do. I'm, I'm assuming this book will be used as a, a text for college students. Is it well, just for I, yeah, them? We're hoping so. Yeah, we've already got, we've gotten a lot of uh, people saying, yeah, we want to do this in our class. And in fact, I think it's something that adults, obviously I'm biased, you know, and I hope um, it, it's probably designed also for adult groups and even for adolescent groups uh, in high school. Uh, these are things, uh, the, the issues are right where people are. I remember once you, you mentioning, uh, you know, historically, w when has the term binge ever been positive? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and again, generally, uh, binge watching is, uh, and again, I would ask, much like um, Adam was given the responsibility of naming the animals, uh, which was a process that, that was given to him a kind of a foreshadow of the scientific process where he could observe, make comparisons and contrast, and therefore create categories and concepts. I mean, this was the human gift long before, you know, Francis Bacon, you know, articulated this in the 17th century. Knowing what it is that's motivating me to uh, binge, is it reward viewing? Is it resignation viewing? Is it relief viewing? Just being able to do that is uh, Adam-like in naming the animals, hmm. naming the motivations uh, so that you can get to know yourself better. You can get to know uh, the labyrinth sometimes. You can get to know uh, the, uh, the, 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 the processes toward uh, uh, unthinking addiction, uh, the processes that, that take you away from relationships with live people that can reciprocate uh, and 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 w with whom you can converse, and as I said earlier, the stories that you can help write and you have an effect on. It's a hopeful book in my mind. Uh, oh, no, no question, no question. And in fact, whenever I hear the word hope, I always uh, describe hope as the purpose behind persistence. Why keep going? And that's one of the the the, the reasons the book was written is is it, uh, why keep walking towards the promised land in a in an intelligent, thoughtful, careful, humane, non judgmental way. Yeah. Before we go, I want to touch base. Um, a while back, we did a podcast on your um, habit of memorizing, uh, stewarding the stirrings of yeah, your soul, yeah, yeah. As, I, as I remember you saying. Do uh, you still doing this? How, how's that? Yeah, still part of your life? I'm still doing it. I've been memorizing basically a verse a day since 1993. And I spend the first two hours of every day basically reviewing on a weekly cycle the, the verses that I've learned since then. And generally what I memorize in the scriptures are the texts that inspire me. Like, wow, it, it almost has to have a wowzer factor. And I will memorize quotes from history. I do a show where I recite a story or last words of a martyr from every century of church history. For instance, when I read Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, uh, our normal life, uh, in normal life, we hardly realize how much more we receive than we give. And then Bonhoeffer said, but the joys of life are not possible without such gratitude. Right. I thought when I read that, I went, whoa, whoa, whoa. And that was then I put it in my my journal to memorize. And again, for people who aren't used to this, again, because they live in a culture that tells them you don't have to memorize anything, including your phone number uh, anymore. The, the problem is looking it up. It's always seven seconds too late. You look at the ex extemporaneous sermon of Peter's uh, eight minute sermon in Acts 2. 
Uh, that was extemporaneous. But the, he's quoting Joel 2. He's quoting uh, Psalm 17. He's quoting uh, Psalm 91 extemporaneously in an eight-minute sermon that changed the world. I'll give you another example of the importance of memorization. Jesus in the wilderness. What's he do? Um, a man doesn't live by bread alone. He's able to retrieve on command as was the rabbinical habit of the day. Uh, Deuteronomy 8.3, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God. I talk about this to secular audiences too, to non-churched audiences. And I say, look, if you have a mission statement in your organization and it's not memorized, it's dead on a page. If you can't retrieve it as circumstances invite you to redeem it, and if you can't retrieve that mission statement to help you contextualize why you're doing what you're doing right now, then it's dead on a page. Paul, thank you so much for uh, sitting down and talking. I always enjoy talking with you. Honored to be your guest today, and thank you for your friendship and for your intro to the book. And again, that was Paul Patton. The book he's co-authored with the exceptional scholar Robert Woods is titled Everyday Sabbath, How to Lead Your Dance with Media and Technology in Mindful and Sacred Ways. We'll put a link to the book in our show notes as well as a link to Paul's podcast and the other interviews I've done with him. Do check out Renovari's other podcast titled Friends in Formation. We are finding our flow and it's getting really good. I'm Nathan Foster and you've been listening to the Renovari podcast. This work is made possible by donations from people like you. You can support this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovari.org slash donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find articles and other resources at our website, renovare.org. This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. And until next time, be well, friends. Be well.